You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Like you, I've been here for this entire conference, and I've worshipped with you. I've laughed. Several times I've choked up. Once I cried. In every session, without exception, I've been stirred. And if I left right now, I know that I would leave feeling very motivated to to move, to move on, to do my best, to expand my vision, to motivate those that I lead. But I noticed something, and my guess is I'm not alone in what I notice within myself. Every time I feel all of that, every time I feel this great desire to move on and to advance the kingdom through whatever leadership opportunities God has granted to me, I always sense, not always, but often sense, that there's something going on inside of me where very few see, where even I can't see very clearly, something that's getting in the way. Something holds me back from fully releasing all that God has made me and what he's put within me to advance his cause. Just Thursday afternoon, after listening to the first full day of the conference and feeling very, very stirred, I went back to my hotel room and the phone rang and it was a highly visible, highly influential leader who called me and said, Larry, I have a plan for your life. Apparently, assuming I don't have one for myself. (laughs) And he made known a phenomenal ministry opportunity to me that fits my burdens and fits my calling and fits my passion. And I felt thrilled. I was exhilarated. I felt alive. And when I hung up the phone within five minutes of that conversation, I felt another force inside of me that was scared, that was angry, and felt very, very tired. What's that all about? What are these opposing forces within us? What's happening inside of me? What goes on in the interior life of the leader that gets in the way, and what can we, what can we do about it? Now, I need to have you assume something with me, and I don't think we'll have any trouble with agreeing on this assumption that all of us are a mess. When I wrote my first book back in the 1970s, It was a time when Tom Harris's book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, was at the zenith of its popularity. And I wanted to title my first book, not I'm Okay, You're Okay, but something more biblical. I wanted to call my book, I'm a Mess, You're a Mess. (laughs) And the publisher thought it was a very interesting title, but that the book wasn't, so they named it Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. I believe what's wrong with me is wrong with you. Bill said what unifies us is our depravity, and that's so true. And I also believe something that's not terribly encouraging. I believe that's wrong, that what is wrong with us, what is most deeply wrong with us, can never be fixed or improved. It can only be replaced. Therapists make a great mistake when they try to rearrange the flesh. In Henry Nouwen's last book, Sabbatical Journey, 
He said something like this. It's close to a quote. I've come to believe, Henry said in the last year of his life, that my deepest internal wounds will never be healed. Therefore, I must not endlessly analyze them. But if I embrace them, I will discover something better beneath that the Spirit of God is placed there. Let me share something very personal and very current. I, I called my 87-year-old father last night. Three weeks ago, my wife and I and my sister-in-law, my brother's widow, flew to Florida to pack up their things and to move them to assisted living in Denver. Mother's struggling with increasing levels of confusion and disorientation, and they can no longer live independently. Two weeks ago, last Wednesday, we all arrived in Denver by plane and ready to move them into their new assisted living facility close to where we live and to be with us. On Thursday, two weeks ago, the day after we arrived, Mother fell down our stairs and broke her back. It was tough going to the emergency room from 5 till midnight last Thursday night, two weeks ago. It was tough watching her scream in agony. It was tough watching her admitted to the hospital for five days. It was tough taking her to the rehab center after those days in the hospital. It was tough taking my father to visit mother and to watch him choke up and get very, very down as he watched his wife of 62 years, the woman he has faithfully loved, disappearing before his eyes. And it stirred all sorts of things inside of me. When I talked to Dad last night, I cried again. What do you do with all the stuff, the, this case, the pain? More than the pain, the issues that every relationship with every father stirs at some level, and I'm no exception. Let me suggest to you that I am doing my best to make a practice of neither ignoring what's happening inside of me, nor do I any longer try to figure out what's happening inside of me. I'm rather embracing, as best I can, the pain and confusion and anger and feeling absolutely helpless in its wake, but discovering that there's something deeper in my soul than all the junk. The first point that I'm wanting to make this morning is that there's something inside of me and inside of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's terrific by the grace of God. And it's stronger and deeper than all that's bad. As I embrace the wounds and the sorrows and the struggles of what we're going through in our family right now, what I'm discovering is that I'm alive with the life of Jesus, and I genuinely, and I'm thrilled to be able to say this, I genuinely feel privileged to care for my parents, and that's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace. See if you agree with this. I believe it's new covenant teaching. Your deepest desires are good. Of course you have bad desires. I do too. Like the lust for pornography that we saw on the stage a few minutes ago. Like a tendency to not go the extra mile for your parents. But the key to a healthy internal life is not only to resist bad urges. Yes, of course do that. But discover the deeper good urges that the Spirit has planted in your new heart when you were saved. That help us understand our interior lives and to, as we go about our 
opportunities and responsibilities as leaders, I, I want to think with you this morning about what I call the two-room model for understanding ourselves. I want to teach about that for a few minutes, but I don't want this to be a teaching session in the normal academic sense of that word. I, my prayer is that I'll be engaged as I listen to myself and facing what's, what's, what's inside of me that's not what it should be. I want to introduce this idea of the lower room with an illustration to help you understand what I mean when I talk about a, a lower room and an upper room. Illustration to make the first point. About a year ago, maybe a little longer than that, only one reason, by the way, why I'm glad my wife is not here, and that's whenever I speak and I say something happened a year ago, I have never any idea when it was, I just make it up, but she always knows. <laughs> and even in a room this side, if she were this size, if she were sitting up there, she would call out and say, Larry, it was 18 and a half months ago on a Tuesday. And I, in case she's listening now, I ask you all, do you care? <clears throat> the men applauded. Without fear of contradiction, about a year ago, <clears throat> my wife and I were driving back from College Station, Texas, to our home in Denver, and we had occasion to go through Dallas, where close friends of ours, Dave and Jeannie, live, and we had called them and arranged to meet them at a restaurant at 5 o'clock on, on, on an afternoon. I have no idea what afternoon. <clears throat> and the drive from College Station to Dallas had been a very pleasant drive. Uh, we were in a good mood. We were enjoying each other and enjoying good music on the radio, country western, the best kind. And we were just having a fine time. And as we pulled into the restaurant, I was very aware of something that disturbed me a bit. Dave and Jeannie are very, very close friends, and they they knew about a situation in the life of my wife and I that's been very, very hard, a heartbreaking situation in our personal lives. And and I knew that because they're such close friends, and they knew about the struggles that we were going through as a family, that they would ask about it. And I found myself not wanting to talk about the hard stuff. And as we parked the car in the restaurant before going in, I said to my wife, Honey, would you mind if, if we just didn't um, engage in that particular conversation and if we could just deflect it when it comes up or just tell them directly, we're not going to talk about it, if that would be okay with you? And she nodded, Yeah, if you don't want to talk about it, I understand, that's fine. And we stayed clear of the conversation. We had a, a, a difficult conversation. We had a good evening. And we got in the car and drove home and... Things were pleasant, things were fine. Until we got home, and for the next several weeks, I, I discerned that my wife um, had taken a turn in her mood. <laughs> now, I'm trained to pick up on these things. <laughs> this one didn't require much training. And after about three weeks of experiencing her being rather cold and almost to the point of being icy and, and distant from me, after three weeks, I finally worked up the courage after having counsel with couples every day during those three weeks. I worked up the courage to, <laughs> to say to my wife in my typically sensitive way one evening, I said, something wrong? <laughs> and she said, no.
And I said, honey, something, something's wrong. You've been, you've been cold. You've been distant. And she finally said, well, yes, I, something is wrong. Well, what? Oh, my. What she said was, remember three weeks ago? No. Remember dinner with Dave and Jeannie when you said to me in the car you didn't want to talk about the difficult topic? And I said, yeah, I remember that. And she said, you know, that felt so insensitive. I was so looking forward to being with these close friends and receiving their nourishment and encouragement and talking about that, and I felt like there was nothing in you that was sensitive toward me. So what do you do? Well... I was wrong, there's no question, and so I apologized, and I apologized like I would suspect many of you apologized to your mates and friends. I, I said to her, honey, that was insensitive of me, and I am really, really sorry. Comma, next word. You've been there. <laughs> Honey, I'm really sorry. That was incredibly insensitive. But if you would have made it known to me, if you would have said to me in the car, Larry, I can appreciate that you don't want to talk about it. You don't need to talk about bad things all the time. There's a time for a break from discussing hard things. But I was so looking forward to this. And Larry, I really would like to talk to Dave and Jeannie about these struggles. They nourished my soul. Honey, if you would have said that, what do you think I would have said? Am I some monster who would have said, no. And as I was sharing this with my wife and <laughs> helping her helping her understand this sort of thing, she I looked over and she was crying. And I honey, what what are you crying about? And she literally said these words, remember fifteen years ago? And then through her tears, she told me about a situation that I actually did remember. And she said, something happened in a relationship 15 years ago where I felt like you tried to straighten me out. And Larry, my wife said to me, I, I felt like your project for years. That broke my heart. And I wept. And as I wept over something coming out of deep parts of me that was so ugly, something was coming out of this regenerate Christian man who loves his wife, who's committed to his wife, who's been faithful to his wife, who will go to his grave, I trust, being faithful to my wife, because I love her more than anybody else in the world. And in the middle of all of that, there was something coming out of me that made my wife feel like a project, and I was broken. I began to weep, and my wife said, I'm so sorry to make you feel so bad. And my response was, do you understand how good brokenness can feel? In that moment, I went from my lower room of ugliness 
to the upper room that's within me by the grace of God. I want to talk to you about the lower room and the upper room. I want you to think about your insides. I want you to think about where you feel and where you set goals and where you react most deeply. And I want you to think about your, your history and your present and your future and I want you to go down deep inside beneath all the wonderful things we've heard about setting goals and pursuing excellence and having vision and encouraging others and all those incredibly important things that leaders must do. Now I want to take us inside and look at the two rooms in every regenerate soul. What Pascal called the principle of wretchedness and the principle of greatness. What C.S. Lewis called the diabolical self and the celestial self. What Teresa of Avila called the moat around the castle and the interior mansions inside the castle. What the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit. What I choose to call the lower room and the upper room. Look deep in your heart. And I believe you'll find four ugly core passions there in each one of us. And if we as leaders don't understand these core ugly passions and don't face them and admit them and acknowledge them and become broken by them, we'll never discover the operation of the grace of God in our hearts. We'll believe it, but it will not have power. The four ugly passions in the core of our souls. What am I talking about? I want you to understand before I list these four passions for you that I believe that These four passions are absolutely unmanageable. Much in your life as a leader is manageable, and whatever is manageable should be well managed. But the core passions of the fallen human heart cannot be managed. They can only be replaced. You don't help a pornographer by weakening his pornographic urge. You help a pornography, uh, you help a pornographer by releasing stronger urges that the Spirit of God has put within until the, as the old Puritan used to say, until there's an expulsive power of a new affection. It's so easy for us to be slaves to these four ugly passions without ever realizing what they are, without ever seeing them in operation, as for 15 years, my wife labored under the sense that she was my project, and I never knew it. That was core to our relationship. My wife and I were speaking last week at a marriage seminar, and after 33 years of marriage, I said to the crowd, for the first time ever in talking about marriage, for 33 years of marriage, I said, I believe... After all these years of marriage, if there's something profoundly supernatural going on in our relationship, and to whatever degree that's true, it's come about because of brokenness. Facing these awful passions within us. Passion number one, the passion for self. The passion where we fail to realize how much we want to be the point rather than God. If you believe in the Trinity, and I believe the Trinity is the cornerstone of the Christian religion, if you believe in the Trinity, then you believe that there is community at the highest levels of reality, and that we who bear God's image were designed for relationship. And that what you and I thirst for more than anything else is not power, not success, not even effective ministries, but relationship. But something's gone wrong. We who bear the image of a relational God who long for relationship, something has gone wrong within us. The image has become corrupted and our passion to give relationship and enjoy it has been replaced by the passion to demand relationship. I'm the point. 
And I want you to relate to me in a particular way, and nothing matters more than that. When I speak, I want you to laugh at the right times. I want you to go, hmm, at the right times. I want you to do all sorts of things at the right times. I'm the point. God, share your glory with me. And when you demand relationship, you will become bitter. Because you're churches and the folks that you lead and your spouses and your kids and your friends will not give you all that you want in a relationship. Why do you get so angry when you're criticized? Very simply, your goal is blocked. You're demanding that you be honored and affirmed and when you're not, it hurts so bad, you can think of nothing else that's passion for self. I was so very hurt by certain people in recent years that I carried a deep grudge for a long time. Until about six months ago, I woke suddenly at two o'clock one morning out of a deep sleep and immediately, and I say this openly because I know some of you have similar experiences and I'd like us to face honestly how the spirit sometimes works. I, I woke from a deep sleep and immediately my mind was seized with the most disgusting image I could possibly imagine. There was nothing that I wanted to think about, nothing that I enjoyed thinking about, but it was the most disgusting, vile image that I ever had imagined in my life. And as I sat up in bed with this image just filling my mind, I found myself hating it. I felt like I was being dipped in the very presence of hell. And I began literally to plead the blood of Jesus. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't hear a voice, but I so clearly sensed in the middle of that horrible moment, the Spirit saying to me, that's where your anger comes from. I immediately felt peace. The anger vanished, and I contacted the people I was mad at the next day and asked their forgiveness. The passion for self is the corrupted image of God within us that will inevitably make you bitter because you will not get what you demand. Passion number two, the passion for control. Where we mistake, now listen, where we mistake self-dependence for the Spirit's enabling. Am I operating right now out of a particular spiritual gift with the Spirit's enabling? Or am I using whatever natural talents I might have to present some ideas on the power of the flesh? What's happening right this moment as I address you? What's happening, pastors, next Sunday when you get up to preach? Are you controlling? The passion for control, I will use my resources, my leadership gifts, my talents to make things work the way I want them to. When we demand control, we live for power and we cannot love. Oh, it's so subtle. When our two boys that are now 31 and 28 were born, typical father, I was scared to death and decided I was going to do it right. By the time my boys were six and eight, each one of them knew what the word propitiation meant. <laughs> I took it upon me to teach my kids the Bible. Folks, for devotions, I purchased an overhead projector. <laughs> How many kids have you know that have turned out bad having been raised on devotions with an overhead projector? It doesn't happen very often. I was going to make it happen using my talents, my resources, my energy. Then 11 years ago, and I tell this with my son's permission, he's given me full permission to talk about this, 
Eleven years ago, my son at age 20 was expelled from Taylor University for reasons that I agreed with. Y'all heard of Taylor University, not too far from here. Chuck Colson says, send your kids to Taylor. It's in the middle of the boondocks of Indiana. And the way Chuck puts it, it's 50 miles from the nearest sin. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> when I got the news that my boy had been expelled from Taylor, I was brokenhearted. I was away doing a seminar. The next morning, I was to give a three-hour lecture on parenting. I gave it. It was the hardest talk I ever gave. I flew home immediately. The first plane I could get, I drove to be with my son the hour and a half from our home in Warsaw, Indiana, down to Upland, Indiana, and I agonized. And as on the way down in the car, it was literally as if Jesus was with me because what was very clear in my mind as I was driving down, this is 11 years ago, was, Larry, you have tried to control and manage something that only my spirit can make happen. Your son doesn't need more of your control. He needs a glimpse of me through you. And when I went to see my son, there was a miracle that took place, and the miracle was this. I wasn't angry. My first words to my boy when I gave him a hug were, how can I help? I heard him the next day on the phone talking to a friend of his who was also expelled, saying, I couldn't believe it. All Dad wanted to do was help. That day, my son gave his heart to Christ. The passion to control... Lower room passion. Thirdly, the passion to define life and death. Now ponder this with me for a few minutes. The third passion in the lower room, the passion to define life and death. Each one of us experiences life. Each one of us experiences pleasure. And each one of us experiences pain. We experience the good things and the bad things. But what we do as fallen lower room people is we corrupt the pleasure and pain of life into a definition of what life and death is all about. We use our bad experience to define death, and we say, that hurt, it'll never happen again, that felt good, and I'm going to get it more. We define what's life, and we define what's death. Jesus never gave us the right to define life and death. He defined it for us. This is life, that they may know God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is death, separation from God. I say, no, death is stuttering in public like I used to do as a kid all the time. And being so embarrassed. Never again will I be embarrassed. That's death. I know what life is. Life is when I was in graduate school, in my third year, my psychopathology professor handed back papers one day. And as he handed back my paper in front of the whole class, he said, this is the best paper I've ever graded in my years as a professor. Life. wonder what I live for. wonder what you live for. Can you all think of a wonderful experience in your life where you just were so happy? This felt so good. A blessing of God. What have you done with that? Would you take just 30 seconds, ponder that for a moment, and share it with your neighbor, a really good experience in your life where you felt terrific? Just share that with your neighbor now, just for a moment. As you think about that wonderful, pleasurable experience... Can you reflect on what your definition of life might operationally be? We know that life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, who God has sent, and trusting Him and living for Him. That's life. But because of the wonderful thing that happened when we were 6 or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, that wonderful moment that felt so good, are we living to reproduce moments like that? Is that why some of you have gone into the pastorate? How about bad experiences? I want to ask you to share those. But with permission, I tell you, full permission from my wife, I tell you that she endured four years of sexual abuse as a little girl. 
She never told me till 19 years into our marriage. I wonder why. Death for her, I suggest, very simply and somewhat simplistically, is being unsafe. And she was married to a guy who was going to write a good paper and be the right kind of parent and do it all right as a husband and as a father. She was married to a guy who made a project out of his family and she didn't feel safe. And I didn't hear about her abuse till 19 years into our marriage. Lower room passions, they get in the way of everything God wants to do through us. The last passion, very simply, God looks at this whole mess. He looks at us with our passions for self and our passions to control and our passions to chase after whatever brings us pleasure and to avoid what brings us pain. And God condemns sin. And he says, you're not loving me with all your soul, with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And I condemn that. Here's my law. Under the terms of the Old Covenant, God said, you're doing it wrong, do it right, and you shall live. And our response was, what are you putting all these burdens on us for? We can't do it. All right, we'll try, but I wish you were more sensitive to my pain. We feel a passion to perform with underlying resentment at a God who's so unreasonable. Folks, the lower room cannot be improved never gets fixed. The good news is that God, under the terms of the gospel, what he calls the new covenant, has done some marvelous things that introduce a whole new set of passions within us, and now it's up to us which room we choose to live out of. The day you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit created a new room in your heart that I choose to call the upper room, filled with four beautiful passions. Let me tell you what they are. And these four passions correspond with the four major provisions of the new covenant. Under the gospel, under the good news of the new covenant, God looks down at us and he says, you're a mess and I absolutely forgive you and I grant you a new purity. And on the basis of the purity that is now yours, you broken sinner, who, yes, you were involved in internet pornography, yes, you were involved in gossip, yes, you were involved in pride, yes, you're controlling, you're self-oriented. All of that is disgusting. But I want you to know that when my son paid for that on the cross, it was really paid. You're forgiven, and I've given you a whole new purity that allows me, every time I look at you, to sing. That's Zephaniah 3.17. I will sing over you with delight. My wife never told me about her sexual abuse because I don't believe her soul heard me sing. She told me the 19th year of our marriage, and just last weekend, as we were talking about that, the insight came to both of us that she told me in the 19th year of our marriage, likely because in the 18th year of our marriage, for our anniversary, I gave my wife a little leather notebook And the front of it had embossed the words, Companions by Covenant, and I wrote her the first of many letters celebrating her life. My wife, I think, for the first time began to believe that maybe she was being celebrated by her husband. Within a year, she told me about her sexual abuse. She felt safer. A new purity that allows us to worship God. God, you've forgiven me. You sing over me. You want me. That I can look at you, broken, miserable sinner. And I can celebrate you. I can sing with the song of Jesus. That's relationship. A new purity. A new passion. The passion to celebrate. Second passion in the upper room. The gospel provides us the new identity. In one sense, it's no longer accurate to call anybody who's a Christian a sinner. We are now saints. We are saints who sin. 
But our identity is now sinner. We are saints. We have a new identity. I told you a few minutes ago that I used to be a bad stutterer. I stuttered all through grade school and high school, on through college and to graduate school, and there was one day after years of speech therapy that I didn't find helpful, it often is, but it wasn't for me, that I stopped stuttering one particular day when I was as a, working as a counselor in my last year of graduate school at the University of Illinois, and Dr. Lou Eight, a professor of psychology, a counselor, who was a bit of a crusty kind of a guy, teddy bear beneath, but crusty exterior, I didn't know him very well, and I was walking down the hallway one day, and Dr. Eight saw me, didn't know I stuttered, and he said, hi Larry, how you doing? And I said, I, I, Dr. Eight, I'm doing fine, and I stuttered. And Dr. Eight looked at me with this angry, puzzled expression in his face, and these were his words, I'll never forget them. You stutter? I used to stutter too, but I got sick of it, so I quit. Why don't you? And he walked away. <laughs> Go figure, but that's the last day I stuttered. And I'll tell you why. I think that moment changed my sense of identity. I no longer had a sense of Larry the stutterer. I was Larry with capacities beneath that particular difficult speech disorder. When you look at somebody, how do you envision them? When you look at your congregation and they're stubborn, do you see them fundamentally as stubborn? Or do you envision their new identity as you preach? A good pastor friend of mine said that before he came to grips with the provisions of the new covenant, he saw his preaching responsibility as trying to persuade people to do what they really didn't want to do. With the new covenant understanding, he said, now I release people to do what they most want to do if only they knew it. It's altogether different. You're new creations. Therefore, we can envision each other. A third, a second passion of the, of the upper room, a third passion of the Upper room, the gospel provides a new disposition. A new, this new disposition internally just makes me long to, to grow into Christ and to indulge my deepest urges and to see the work of Christ in you as opposed to control you and manipulate you and make you into a project and make you orient your life around me. Now I want to celebrate the Spirit of God within you. A saint with pornographic problems asked me for help a little while ago and I told him I have no idea how to weaken bad urges. But I believe in every Christian there are good urges that can be identified, strengthened, and released as a new disposition. And I went looking for that to see it. As we spent many hours discovering good urges toward his wife and children and towards God, and as these were developed through the spiritual disciplines, through self-awareness, through prayer, he began indulging deeper good urges that eventually displaced the bad ones. That, to me, is Christian therapy. You see, I reject the moralistic culture that says, just do what's right. I reject the therapeutic culture which says, let's fix what's wrong. I buy into the spiritual culture which says, let's release the miracle of grace in the heart of God's children. And lastly, the gospel provides a new power that enables me to obey and to stir up holy passions in another Hebrews 10.24, let's think hard, the writer of the Hebrews says, let's think hard about how to stimulate each other to love and to good works. The actual literal translation is, let's think really hard about how to create a fever in each other 
to take the little candle, the little flame that's burning there by the Spirit of God, and can we as a community of God's people take that little candle and fan it into a bonfire of love for Jesus? Several months ago, I was in the middle of a really tough travel schedule, and I was it got to me, and I got home one night after traveling a lot. My wife was not at home. She was visiting friends elsewhere, and I felt very lonely and discouraged. And the next morning, I got up at 6 o'clock to... To pray, I was not in a good spiritual spot at all, and I wrote in my journal, I'm fighting a new level of battle, and I have no idea what to do. And then I sat back and thought, no, I know what to do. Call Trip, buddy of mine. I called him. He lives up in Quebec City, and I, the reason I called him was this man lives out the new covenant, and I knew what he would do. He would celebrate me from his upper room. He would believe in me from his upper room. He would see the Spirit alive in me from his upper room. And as a result of his doing all those things, the good passions that God has placed within me would be stirred. I make a habit most mornings of getting up early and celebrating the Lord's Supper by myself. And that morning I had the wine and the bread on the hearth of our fireplace as I called Trip, and I didn't want to take it. And after I chatted with Tripp for just about 20 minutes, he said nothing particularly brilliant, but the passions that are literally from Jesus Christ came out of him and into me. And after I hung up, I stood up and I went, yes, and with gusto I celebrated the Lord's table. When a leader's passion is to celebrate the gospel in somebody else's life, it releases the passion to worship God. When a leader's passion is to envision who someone in Christ could become, it releases the passion to trust God in that person. When the passion is to see the good stuff, the work of the Spirit, beneath the junk, it releases the passion to grow like Christ. When the leader's passion is to invigorate another by pouring out whatever is spiritually alive, it releases the passion in another to obey Christ. Let me close with this. Are you aware of your, of your lower room? Are you safe enough in the presence of God's Spirit to know that the passions of the lower room are very real? Do we realize that the root, the means of transition from moving from the lower room to the upper room is the root of brokenness in community? The method, if you will, for moving from the lower room to the upper room is brokenness by facing the lower room. God, that's in me. I made my wife a project. And to own that in the presence of a spiritual friend who will sing because of the gospel. Who will envision what could become in your life who will see the work of the Spirit beneath the junk, and who will pour out of his or her heart what's most alive. I am so thrilled to be sharing with you today. I want to live out of my upper room. It requires the spiritual disciplines. It requires community. It requires listening to the Word taught every Sunday by my pastor. By God's grace, let's get out of the way. Let's live out of the upper room toward each other. Father, give us the courage to face what's there, to experience the horrible pains of brokenness, but to realize in the middle of confessing our faults to one another and owning what's so bad, 
that we're on the threshold of an incredible discovery. We're going to find out that beneath all the mess, there's something beautiful in us, and it's the life of the Trinity. God, because of our leadership, may the life of the Trinity find expression in our communities. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.